Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm delighted to share the rest of the second series is once again in partnership with Heck. Being an independent and family-owned business, they pull out all the stops to bring that farmer's market quality to the supermarket shelf. In addition to their delicious original range, they offer veggie options too, catering for absolutely everyone, all of which can be found online at heckfood.co.uk and in the major supermarkets too. Hello and thank you so much for tuning in to Food for Thought, a podcast on a mission to equip you with all the evidence-based advice you need to live and breathe a healthy lifestyle. I'm Rhiannon Lambert, a registered nutritionist, master practitioner, best-selling author of Renourish, A Simple Way to Eat Well and founder of Retrition, London's leading private nutrition clinic. In each episode of this second series, I'll be joined by special guests, all of whom can be considered authorities in the world of well-being, so that together we can learn fact from fiction and empower the healthiest versions of ourselves with trusted expert advice. Scientists are increasingly discovering the central role that gut bacteria plays in our overall health and mental well-being. But we have a way to go before we know exactly what nutrition is best for your gut. So joining me to help translate exactly what we know today is Tim Spector, Professor of Genetic Epidemiology at King's College London and Consultant Physician at Guy's and St Thomas's Hospital. Tim leads the largest microbiome project in the UK, which makes him ideally placed to sift fact from fiction on gut health wonder foods, probiotics, prebiotics, and exactly what changes to your diet can genuinely boost your health. Hello, Tim. Hi. Thank you for coming on Food for Thought today. I've been very, very keen to have you on the podcast for a while because I know that we've discussed this sort of thing before, but actually getting you in the studio is is quite exciting for me. Exciting for me too. (laughs) Good. I mean, what exactly is gut health? I mean, it's such a powerful determinant of our health today, um, or so it's being claimed. Could you delve into that a little bit and first of all explain to people what the term even means? Well, gut health used to be a general term for realizing there was some general connection between what went on in our in our guts and our brains and our general health. But it was always very vague until about 10 years ago when we discovered uh, this whole other organ inside us uh, called the gut microbiome. Mm. And it's best to think of it as a, as a newly discovered organ um, of 
100 trillion microbes, most of them which live together in our large intestine. Mm. And together as a community and a group, they work together and they're like this amazing group of chemical factories. Cool. So they're pumping out all these interesting chemicals, vitamins, hormones, that we've just taken for granted for the last uh, few hundred years. And they do this in a way that's really crucial to our general health. They send signals to our brain to keep us um, generally happy or sometimes sad. Mm. Uh, they can influence our sleep patterns. They can influence our immune system to a big way about whether we're resistant to infections or mm. not or whether we overact and get allergies. And, of course, their main function is is digesting food yeah. uh, with hundreds more chemicals that our body normally doesn't have that only these microbes can produce if they're fed right. Yeah. And so the whole thing is this relationship between us and this newly discovered organ that contributes to not only our gut health, but that gut health in turn is, is a crucial part of our total global health. Well, complete. I mean, that's such a wonderful explanation. It's a fascinating area. And of course, as a nutritionist myself, it's one that I am so invested in wanting to learn as much about as possible. But it's kind of reached a mainstream level now. I think a lot more people are aware that your gut health means something, you know, that it's important for us. But is there anything in particular we can do or we can we can take, let's say, like people talk about kombucha or kimchi that that could be added into our diets to improve this? Yes, there are lots of things uh, you can do to improve your gut health, but it's important to realise a bit about the basics behind that or what we're trying to yes. achieve. So um, we know that in general, uh, to have a good gut health, you need as diverse number of different species of microbes living there. Mm -hmm. So um, there's no point just having a few healthy ones and without that big range because it's that range of diversity that gives you all the different chemicals that allow you to perhaps be more flexible in your life, fight off infections, fight off the odd burger, mm. you know, um, and just to have a more flexible range of defenses. Mm. So what you want to do generally is to improve the overall diversity of the species in your gut, just, you know, like you would in a garden. I love this analogy. I've heard you talk about the garden before. So we know that um, if you're unhealthy, you're going to have um, a gut that's going to look like a very sparse garden with hardly anything growing in there. The soil's poor. You've just got a few species of plants and it's quite easy to take over the whole space with weeds. Mm. And if you've got a really healthy gut, your soil is incredibly rich. The soil itself is full of microbes and you've got hundreds and thousands of different species all growing there, interacting with each other, feeding each other with no room for nasty toxic weeds to take over. Mm. And it's the same analogy that we want to, to do is to have a rich garden inside us. And so you've got to think, what are the things that are going to do that? And um, they all come into different categories, really. So the first, the first one is what most people know about is what we call probiotics. Yes. Uh, which are basically live microbes that um, we believe are important for our health. Mm -hmm. And everyone knows about yogurt. Yeah, Greek yogurt and, and things like um, that. That's used to be thought of as bad because it had fat in it, mm. and so they had these. Uh, synthetic zero-fat yogurts, which oh, um, poor, really destroyed, <laughs> yeah, destroyed the taste of it and added many chemicals. But 
now people realize that there's nothing wrong with yogurt and actually yogurt eaters on average are healthier than non-yogurt eaters even if it's full fat that's the first thing that most a lot of british people do anyway mm. um what they don't do is often think about other foods that are probiotic and so cheese is a good example mm-hmm. and cheese has had a bad rap from gps yeah. uh, saying that oh you mustn't have cheese it's bad for your heart yeah well, it's all complete nonsense and it's gone over this and now recently been debunked Great. Um, so all cheese is good, but if you get the artisan cheese rather than the processed cheese, you're going to have more chance of having something live in there rather than that's been killed five I years eat. before in mm. the factory. Mm. So live is important. So you've got your your full fat yogurts, you've got your artisan cheese, ideally raw milk, mm-hmm. because it gives you a greater range of microbes. That's so interesting. I don't think most people would think about having raw milk. Yeah, and it's it's becoming increasingly common, uh, raw milk cheeses. Uh, mm. They've been around in France for uh, the last 100 years, but mm. it's only really the last 10 years in this country that we've started to reinvent them. We had them before the war, then they got wiped out. Okay. Now people are realizing you can create very safe, very tasty uh, raw milk cheeses yeah. that have a greater diversity of microbes mm. and many people believe, extra complex flavours. But obviously not for anybody that's maybe pregnant or anything like that. Is that something they should be avoiding, would you say? Um, uh, well, that's an interesting about- point. I, I I don't have strong views on that because mm. I know that uh, when I go to France and Belgium, they eat any Seven cheese things. going. Yeah. They don't have the same restrictions. With so the fact yeah. that every country has a different rules about pregnancy suggests to me <laughs> that nobody has a clue what's going on. So interesting. Um, so I'm not going to give any opinions on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think you've just got to make your own mind up yeah. uh, about what is uh, safe and not. But okay. the, the risks of unpasteurized um, dairy products, uh, it, certainly in cheese, have been vastly exaggerated Uh, but the Americans still ban it the Australians still ban it most of Europe uh, accepts it so you know again you know they can't all be right no and it's such a huge part of culture isn't it over in Europe I mean some countries um, it's such a delicacy or it's a part of family tradition to have cheese even to make your own I suppose exactly and uh, I think you couldn't go and tell uh, someone in France uh, to not eat (laughs) unpasteurized cheeses because they have hundreds of them and all the new ones setting up now to mark them apart from the highly industrialized processed cheese uh, are going to the other extreme and setting them as artisan unpasteurized cheeses so i think we're going to see more of them already in most you know big supermarkets you can find three or four uh, unpasteurized cheeses and uh, i did some tests on myself Okay. Using them, so I, I I went on the unpasteurized French cheese diet. Okay, and tell me about this diet. It, it was I wrote about it in my, in, mm. uh, my book, The Diet Myth, mm. as one of the weird experiments that I was doing. Um, and so for three days, I said I'll, I'll try this and see how it affects my microbes. So I ate only uh, Roquefort, oh, um, Brie de Meaux, and Epoisse, all of which are unpasteurized. Those who didn't know, um, and it's fantastic yeah. for the first day. Yeah. <laughs> this is all I'm eating, by the way, oh, apart gosh. from a bit of red wine. Um, and uh, okay, I, I did allow myself a bit of sliver of apple and things okay, like that. Okay, lovely. Um, uh, day two, not so good. And by day three, you really had enough cheese. You yeah. want to have something else inside your mouth. Can't imagine. And it, unfortunately, it didn't change my microbes. But um, I, I did learn um, that I like cheese, but not <laughs> to the extent of having nothing else. Um, so that 
that was a little adventure. So cheese is there. Um, other things, obviously, since I wrote my book uh, four years ago and mentioned kefir. I love um, kefir. It's Tim. now certainly gone mainstream in mm. London. Mm. Uh, it's harder to find in other parts of the country, but definitely uh, where I live in North London, all the corner shops have now got it. And four years ago, no one had heard of it. Amazing. And that's been a real uh, sort of revolution. And, of course, it was always around. It's been in the Polish shops, yeah, other um, cultures. anyone from East Europe, um, and Scandinavia, of course, have had their own versions of it. Well, it's just like sauerkraut's another example of a great food for, for gut health. Yet yeah, it's been around for yonks in places like Poland. But over here... We've, yes, I mean... It's hard to know when fermented foods went out here. Mm. I think it was probably before the war. Mm. And I uh, do hear of people who used to make their own, um, even, you know, uh, kombuchas and things like this Could you just uh, in the 30s. What um, fermented foods are for people listening? Yes. So we've talked about probiotics, mm-hmm. uh, which are a form of fermented food, but basically they, uh, the yogurt and the cheese is just uh, where you're using the the microbes to break down the proteins or the sugars into something else. And by um, f- the fermenting process, they produce uh, lactic acid uh, or sometimes acetic acid, which uh, lowers the pH and stops other microbes growing. So it effect- mm-hmm. effectively protects that food product from being going moldy uh, in mm. other ways. So you're creating microbes that go into it they create an environment that only they can live in. Yeah. And uh, then humans can actually eat it, knowing they're not going to get infected with anything else. So this is, this is absolutely crucial to humans before refrigerators were um, on the market. And so many cultures around the world have, have fermented all kinds of different foods wow. in order to preserve them. And they can last for weeks or months mm. uh, in this way. And people have fermented eggs. They've fermented uh, cabbage. They've pickled fermented onions and things. Virtually and <laughs> everything yeah. you can pickle to some extent. And, of course, in Asia, uh, huge amounts of uh, fermenting goes on. Most of Japanese culture comes from uh, the use of uh, combining bacteria with a fungus called koji, uh, which makes is the whole basis of miso soup and I love soybeans. Miso. Yeah, miso paste. Oh, yeah, yeah so very that, tasty. So all this things that we didn't know until a few years ago were actually fermented uh, should contain live microbes and therefore are probiotic. Brilliant. And um, so part of the health we think of people like Koreans who have um, their own form of. Uh, Korean sauerkraut, which is called kimchi, mm. which is made from garlic, um, um, chilies, uh, onions, uh, cabbage, or daikon, and mixed in with paprika, and, and mm. is served three times a day, and even given to children. Wow! So, if if you fancy a different type of breakfast, it's a it's certainly <laughs> a, a spicy pick you up. I'm sure you've tried that one too. I've tried them all, yes, um, and I, I hated it at first, I must say, but yeah. now I've I went to a um, a fermenting course, uh, a kimchi course in uh, Hoxton. Uh, really? And I'll make my own. Tim, that's uh, great. So your kitchen must be full of jars of it's, everything. It's through smelly things, yes. Yeah, I uh, bet your wife loves that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we're, we're um, definitely always experimenting on something new. So, yeah. And these are things I just wasn't doing myself. So we've. Uh, I should say that there's a, 
when uh, something like kimchi or sauerkraut, uh, it's sometimes called a, um, uh, it's a prebiotic and a probiotic. Mm-hmm. Some people call it a symbiotic. Mm. Because as well as the live microbes, you're also getting the fuel for the microbes. Okay, so these plants, the little bits of cabbage, the little onions, uh, plenty of fiber in them, and that's actually going to go down to your digestive system and keep the whole process going. Mm. So a lot of people believe that if you provide that as well, that's that's like a double bonus yeah. uh, inside you. And um, we're learning that as we do this more, that things like kimchi have, uh, you know, perhaps 30 different species of microbe in them. That's incredible. And each kimchi is different. Ah. Similarly, kombuchas can be extremely complex. And um, kombucha, by the way, as you know, is is a form of fermented tea Mm. that probably originated in Russia, then went to California for a bit, and only really hit these shores uh, again in the last uh, two or three years. Um, Well, there's a lot of misconceptions around kombucha because apparently it contains a lot of sugar. So do you think that there's actually more of a detrimental effect to having more of these kind of, I'm going to use the word fizzy drinks, even though I don't think they belong in the same category at all. Um, What's your viewpoint on how beneficial kombucha actually is? Well, I think it depends whether you're going to buy uh, industrially made kombuchas, which uh, a lot of them are very sugary, nearly as... I don't think they're as sugary as, say, your Coke or a Pepsi, mm. but they would have um, two or three teaspoons of, of sugar in, yeah. uh, in in a standard can mm. uh, versus the ones you make yourself exactly. where you can exactly regulate the amount of sugar and the longer you leave it, uh, the more the microbes eat up the sugar and mm. convert it into uh, the the acid the acid or the, um, the extra flavors. So... Um, I make my own kombucha, so I don't actually often have one of these commercial versions. But certainly, um, if you had to compare uh, <laughs> a kombucha from uh, you know a commercial retailer mm. with with you know something like a Fanta or yeah. a Tizer or whatever, oh, no, yeah. it's ten times better. Because even if you are getting some sugar, uh, you're also getting masses of microbes yeah. that's going to put important for your gut health. And when you're making it, do you get the little, we, we call a scoby? Scooby? A scoby, yes. Yeah. So go. you get this blob, uh, <laughs> blob to play with. And you know, yeah. not mine's now been with me for, I don't know, a year. It's about really? an inch thick. Wow. Uh, it seems to be indestructible. Yeah. Um, and uh, you can hardly cut it. You can sort of feel it you yeah. know, perhaps screaming as you try and yeah. trim it, give it a haircut. I recommend watching a YouTube video on how to make kombucha for anyone listening because it's the most incredible alien-like looking um, substance that's developed on the top of the drink. I how would you describe that? Like pl- Not Play-Doh. What is it like? Like slimy, kind of thick... How well, it's half. It? It's like a sort of condensed jellyfish. I yeah. guess is how I describe it. Yeah. Put in wax, mm. so it will it will take the form of your jar. Yeah, and it and it stays in that. And so it totally becomes this. It was. It is just a free floating blob that beca- <laughs> that basically increases in size to the size of your jar. Mm. And it's very happy sitting there. Yeah, uh, and it keep it in the fridge doing nothing in sort of suspended animation. Then you suddenly plonk it in with some tea and sugar, and it comes to life incredible produces little fibrils that go down and i think it's just the most amazing thing to watch because unlike the other fermentations this is something you can actually watch live wow so you get a jar you see your your very dark tea um changing color day Mm. by day as the microbes are eating it yeah and digesting and it becomes lighter and lighter 
and it suddenly takes on extra smells and becomes slightly alcoholic and um, it changes from sweet to sour as the acetic acid. So it's, it's like a perfect biology experiment that I think all yeah. kids should do. Totally. Why is this not in schools, Tim? We could have every school child learning about kombucha. I wish they would learn how to bake kombucha rather than just brownies, which, I know, is, or which is all cupcakes. Fairy cakes. Yeah, I learned fairy cakes. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that very clearly. No, you know, no. Because it would also food. tell you about your gut, because basically mm. what you're seeing in that jar is what's happening to our food of in our course, own guts and it's like course. a sort of version of that that you see so I think it's you know having done it a few times I'm saying wow this is a, this is actually amazing yeah. um, I think it's fascinating the gut in general but we've also seen and I've read somewhere that 15% of people in the UK now or in the world actually not just the UK are suffering from IBS so irritable bowel syndrome and it's definitely something that I know I'm seeing a lot more of, I'm sure you hear a lot of talk about it as well in your line of work. Could you just differentiate for our listeners, first of all? So we know, first of all, we need to eat a big variety of foods to help with our gut diversity, as you've really wonderfully explained. What is the difference between IBS and IBD, for instance? And what factors do you think are really affecting this rise? Okay, so IBS is, stands for Irritable Bowel Syndrome. And something that's called a syndrome, generally in medicine, means that people don't really know how to define it or what mm. it is. So it's a sort of hodgepodge term uh, by people who are trying to sort of group a series of vague symptoms together in a way, trying to force it into a disease category. Mm. And it didn't really exist 50 years ago. Uh, and it seems to be very much a modern phenomenon. Yeah. And it's people are divided about whether it is a new problem or whether it's just people are now more aware of their guts and complain, whereas in the past they put up with it. Yeah, perhaps. We don't really know mm. uh, because no one collected that data before. But there certainly do seem to be differences between countries and cultures mm. in it. Um, and it's probably a number of separate problems that are grouped together because some people um, get discomfort um, on eating, they get uh, spasms in mm. their gut and they can either have a form that gives them constipation and so mm. they uh, increasingly have problems being, being regular and others go the other direction and mm. have diarrhea mm. and bloating. It can be some for some people. It's something that affects them so much they go to the medics for you know prescription medicine for it, which I'm not sure I'm. Yeah, yeah. there are all there's everything on the spectrum from the person who gets the odd bit of bloating and feels a bit full after a meal to someone who's can be you know on the toilet thirty times a day yeah. and uh, incapacitated. So we don't really understand uh, IBS and these classifications. They're definitely. If you're more constipated or more have diarrhea, they seem to be different etiologies. Um, both sets are in some way related to gut microbes, mm -hmm. uh, but we haven't been able to separate cause and effect. We know that whatever type of IBS you've got, you will generally have less diverse microbes, mm. and uh, those that are constipated tend to have more extreme lack of uh, diversity. Which makes sense, actually. Now you've obviously described to us the benefits of having a diverse gut microbiome. Perhaps it really is coming down to our microbiome. Well, that, that no one's been able to show anything else. It doesn't mm. have a major genetic component. Mm. We looked at that in our twin studies. Um, and uh, it's 
probably a combination of different uh, events that perhaps you know you're more prone to it if you start with a very non-diverse diet mm. uh, and then your your microbes start getting denuded and then you you start getting some foods that you find it's difficult to digest I mean, and and some of these people have very specific problems others are very general so again it's a whole it's an extremely complex area to to work out and some yeah. people will be helped by exclusion diets and other people will be helped by inclusion diets and actually sort of eating a wider variety mm. of, of, of vegetables. So there doesn't seem to be one size that fits all. No, and there's different theories, aren't there? So I've heard a lot of things. So for instance, a lot of the time it may not be obviously the food itself. It's how stressed you are, lack of sleep, how much movement you have. So your whole lifestyle on a whole plus your gut microbiome could be affecting the severity of IBS. But on the flip side, there are some people out there that obviously recommend, like you've said, exclusion diets. So FODMAP diets, which I'm sure a lot of listeners have heard of. But if that's not done supervised and you're not then reintroducing foods, your diet can become less varied, which could then have a knock-on effect, of course, on building that strength of diversity for your gut microbiome. So there's a bit of conflicting stuff out there at the moment. Some people say don't FODMAP, some people say do. Exactly. And we, we haven't really got a clue for any one individual no. what is the right uh, treatment for them. So I think people have to keep an open mind, mm. um, experiment with different approaches, see what's right for them. And uh, we're hopeful in the future that there will be better diagnostics to try mm. and categorize people about who's going to do well on FODMAPs, who's going to do well for more fiber, yeah. who's going to do well for more perhaps um, other approaches that might be behavioral feedback ones because a lot of people suffer from stress and anxiety, which is part of this, this mm. vicious circle. Uh, and the, understanding the microbes themselves um, could tell us which categories people fit into and which microbial therapies they would benefit from. There is some evidence that antibiotics have been given that particularly target some, some bugs, uh, have had some limited success in mm. some people, mm. suggesting the microbes, uh, change of the microbes could be a real key to improving things. So Definitely. possibly probiotics have also been uh, used with yeah. varying degrees of success. Mm. And again, we think they work in general, but no one quite knows which the, the best uh, ones to use are. Of course, and it makes sense. Obviously, these living bacteria inside us must be adapting to our different environments and different stresses, so we are completely unique. And I wanted to ask you about a topic I'm asked about a lot, and I know in your book you cover this, um, artificial sweeteners. What have you done in terms of research looking into the effect that sweeteners may potentially have on our gut health? Is there any link or is it still out there? The interesting thing about sweeteners is that they were brought in as a uh, to be much better than, say, say the, the sugars in in um, uh, fizzy drinks yeah. and sodas. Mm. Um, and all the evidence shows the latest meta-analysis of um, fifty-six studies, of which seventeen randomized controlled trials, okay. shows no significant uh, improvement in weight loss by by taking uh, artificial drinks as opposed to sugar drinks. Ah. So we know that sugar drinks are bad for you, they're bad mm. for your teeth, um, they're bad for your general health. And we've been in cloud cuckoo land thinking <laughs> or perhaps being told by uh, food manufacturers and drinks manufacturers mm -hmm. that everything uh, that has aspartame or sucralose or saccharin in it is going to sort out your problems. Mm. So we know that there's no 
health benefit from switching, and we might just be switching problems from the direct chemical problems of sugar to the problems of these um, very unnatural yes. chemicals that we sweeten both our drinks and, and about 50% of processed foods with. And all the evidence is pointing that people do get addicted to this sugary taste, particularly kids, yeah. makes them seek out more sweetness. So they, they will end up with very sweet tooths. Mm. And some people can taking need 30 cans of uh, diet Ooh. drinks a day just to sort of get by. They, yeah. Partly because that's also uh, given with caffeine mm. um, that, that fuels the whole thing. And one reason they don't work, because it's quite interesting. So we, you're having virtually zero calories. Yeah. So why aren't you losing weight? Yeah. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, this is when calories in, calories out comes into question. So, yeah, so there's two points here. One is that it, it makes a bit of a mockery of this calorie counting yeah. nonsense that uh, <laughs> we agree is is rubbish. Yeah. Um, and that we've based all our nutritional guidance on for the last 50 years. And if it worked, then we wouldn't be in the problems we're in today. We'd all be skinny. It'd be dead easy it's to obviously sort more out complicated. your calories. Yeah. So, so someone who's drinking five, you know, cans of Coke or Pepsi switches to Diet Coke, doesn't lose weight, something mm. else is going on. Mm. Um, and what we think is happening is that these these chemicals in the um, drinks are interacting with our microbes to produce new sets of chemicals that are sending funny signals to our yeah. body to say, eat more, I'm not full, uh, switches to your uh, glucose levels, etc. And I've been experimenting um, for my new book with a number yeah. of looking at my blood glucose levels great, with different artificial sweeteners. And I get a blip of my sugar peaking when I take a lot of sucralose, mm. which is in 50% of our, it is. Uh, our drinks. Yeah. And I, that shouldn't happen no. because it's supposed to be a totally inert of substance. It's meant to not have an effect. But something is happening in our bodies. Our microbes are clearly recognized as foreign. Maybe they're acting against it. And then that leads them to be disrupted and produce nasty chemicals that has effect on our metabolism. And mouse experiments have shown that if you give mice these products, they're more likely to get diabetes Ooh. and get fatter. Yeah. So I think we have to be very careful about these chemicals and people are yeah. very misguided by the diet industry. And diet the, culture, Tim, is um, full of chemicals. That it's all you know, and, low calorie. And the Trade Descriptions Act, you know, there's you can't call something diet coke and diet Pepsi. Um, if they don't reduce your weight. And yet they're allowed to do that, whereas poor old yogurt companies can't yeah. call themselves a probiotic. Yeah. Uh, it makes no sense at all. No, I think we're, we're extremely confused. And it's so hard for the general public. And I can't even begin to tell you how many messages I get constantly asking me, is this food okay to eat? Can I have this? Or this product says it's good for me. I've been recommended to buy this protein powder, but it's full of artificial sweeteners. What can I do? And are we going to see more research on humans, do you think, um, on this? Is it currently taking place? Um, the incredible thing is how little research is going on. Oh. And I think uh, the food industry, the drinks industry, have done a fantastic job in trying to distract us from this. Uh, most of the consumer interest has gone is, do these things give us cancer or not? Oh, uh, yeah, of and course. And that that's been going since the 1970s. Yeah. And while people are talking about cancer, they're not so worried about things like weight gain or diabetes or 
all the other effects these things have on us. And mm. it doesn't, they don't cause cancer. Mm. That was a red herring. But there's obviously more to uh, more taking a, a strange chemical. <laughs> mm. they're, they, they're speed tracked through the system. Mm. You know, we've now got stevia. Mm. We've all been given multiple chemicals in small amounts, and they're often combining actual sugar with small amounts of aspartame, mm. sucralose, uh, ACE K, all these other yeah. new ones that we have got no idea what they do uh, to all of us. And it's quite likely that some people react quite strongly to these. Of course. Because the few studies I've done have shown there are some people like me who react to, say, sucralose, but yeah. others don't. Yeah. And I think this is coming back to this whole idea of in the future, how are we going to go for a personalized nutrition? But anyone really who really cares so. about their health should just not eat processed foods, which have huge amounts of these mm. chemicals which we don't know about. They shouldn't be having these uh, artificial diet drinks or foods. Yeah. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I mean, obviously for any everyone out there, it, it's so you know, you've got all these different terms, processed, ultra-processed. Um, for a lot of people in the nutrition world, of course, technically there's no harm taking these things, but we don't know what they do. So I think it goes to show again that science is constantly evolving and I am fascinated by this area and I really hope that we get there one day where we can genuinely give personalised nutrition to everyone. We are all unique and it's something I'm constantly battling. And it comes back to another question that I have on intimate fasting. I remember attending your lecture. I'm trying to think where I was. Obviously, we did the RSM. That was a few years ago. But I went to another one you did recently. I can't remember which CPD course I was at. But you discussed intermittent fasting and the effect on gut healing and the intestinal wall, I think. Um, I know for a fact that obviously, we've just discussed everyone is unique. And intermittent fasting will be maybe perhaps beneficial for some and not for others. Could you delve into your area of looking into this and the effect it may have on the gut? Most of the data is on mice. Mm. Okay, so you have to that leap of faith that says I, I can go from mice to humans. Yeah. But certainly if you, um, you intermittently fast mice, you don't allow them to graze over the day. Mm. Um, you can change the composition of the gut microbes. Okay. And in humans, we know that 
if you sample people sample people at different times of day, you will get different microbes. Mm. So all of us have a different set of microbes when we're not eating than when we are eating, because mm. you've got to realize that the speed of life of a microbe is very much they're in hyper speed. That they mm. they can um, have sex, have babies, mm. you know, and have a another generation in <laughs> half an hour. An hour. In ha- <laughs> half an hour, right? So. Um, about yeah. speed dating, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, um, <laughs> the whole thing is very much faster. Yeah. So they're going at a very much different time frame to us. Mm. So for them, 12 hours is a long time. Yeah. Um, they can have 20, 20 generations wow. uh, in that time. So what we know is that when there's no food around, you get different microbes coming out, which help to repair the lining of the gut. Mm. And some of these are associated, if you have lots of them, they are associated with being slimmer rather than being overweight. And acomancia is one of them, which is a bug that's being developed actually as an anti-obesity drug mm. uh, by some of my colleagues in Belgium. Now, um, so you know that generally you'd, if you were eating all the time, you wouldn't get these good microbes. You wouldn't have those that tidy up your gut lining. They eat, They nibble away at your the lining of your gut, tidying yeah. it up, yeah. like a ha- giving it a haircut, yeah. you know, mowing the lawn, yeah. whatever your I like mowing is. the lawn. We're on the grass garden theme. <laughs> so they're mowing the lawn, and mm. basically, if they don't, not there, then it, you know, it, it goes a bit to pot. Mm. And so, a little bit of fasting is good. Mm-hmm. And as you know, this new concept of restricted time eating is gaining hold. Mm. That if you eat the same amount of calories but over a restricted time, so you're mm. not doing what we were all told at school to do is eat little and often mm. and avoid gorging. But if yeah. you forget that advice, <laughs> you skip breakfast, for example, mm. and then you, you just have all your meals between one and mm. seven in the evening, then all the evidence is pointing that, you, A, you will lose more weight, mm. even if you have exactly the same calories, and your microbes um, will be more in this other state and you'll be healthier. So. Yeah. That's a big generalization based not of on course, much data. Because we know moment. everyone's still in different lifestyles. It's not going to be for everyone. And we had this, there was, I wrote a, a piece in the BMJ recently about skipping breakfast that yeah. was quite controversial. Yeah. It's a controversial topic in general. People got very excited about it depending yeah. on whether they liked <laughs> breakfast or they didn't like yeah. breakfast. And it's a bit like most of the things in nutrition, of course. we tend to go into these religious camps. Yes. Um, and I had to declare my conflict of interest as a breakfast eater. Mm. Luckily, I was on the, I was a breakfast eater who was advocating skipping breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> so that was okay. I yeah. got away with that. Yeah, good balance. Um, but basically, people that skip breakfast are more likely um, eating the same amount of calories in the day are more likely to have uh, be thinner and have mm. less diabetes. So the old idea that you have to eat breakfast to be healthy is oh, nonsense. Yeah. No. And that's also true for kids. Mm. So there are some children that are very hard to get them to eat breakfast, and mothers have sort of you know feel they're terribly mm. guilty about it. There's no hard evidence that they no. uh, do any worse at school than yeah. uh, not, although that has been the dogma and the mantra that's been uh, bombarded, helped by obviously the food companies yeah. who want to sell uh, breakfast but then perhaps it also comes down to the competency so if you're thinking of if your child doesn't want to eat breakfast that's fine but you have to prepare them something for when they're hungry so I think the overall quality of someone's diet is of course going to affect this too surely because not everyone it's will quality, know it's quality not quantity as exactly, well exactly yeah and and as you say there are some people um, you know who never feel hungry in the morning no and yeah um, I always feel hungry in the evening, but you know, yeah. and 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 
everyone is slightly different. It's like me that. and my fiance. He could skip breakfast. I am starving when I wake up. We are polar opposites. Mm. In the evening, I'm not that fast. He and I can ravenous. skip lunch easily. Yeah. Um, I don't yeah. have a problem skipping lunch as long as I can have a, a decent yeah. meal in the evening. So We're all different. We are all different. And it's trying to squeeze everyone into this one-size-fits-all um, really is nonsense. And it's becoming more and more clear in all the, all the data that's coming mm. out. And it makes it hard because all the, the people that make these guidelines, they earn a living from that. Yeah, and public health, of course. If you're thinking, how do you um, get a government initiative out there when everyone is so unique? It's, it's tough. Yes, my dear friends at Public Health England, <laughs> I've given them a hard time recently. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, what they're not doing is being honest about the data. Mm. They're trying to squeeze terrible data into some hard guidelines so they can say what we've got some UK guidelines. Um, three years ago, I went to them with this breakfast data saying yeah. it was there were less than there are now, but there were six trials showing the opposite to what they recommended. Yeah. And they said to me, that's very interesting. These are randomized controlled trials. So yeah, great. completely saying what they said was nonsense. Yeah, randomized controlled trials, for anyone listening, it's pretty much, we mean good, like a very good quality study. Um, which can't be really biased. Mm. And so um, saying the opposite to, to what they were putting in these guidelines and making everybody forced to eat extra calories even if they didn't want them mm. uh, was clearly nonsense. They said, oh, well, we've got no mechanism to change our guidelines. We only meet every five years. Yeah. And uh, so doesn't matter what the science shows. So to my mind, they're not being scientific. They're not being honest with the public. And they're making criteria that help the food companies, that help governments, that help people who want to just say that we've ticked a box Mm. And this is what we're doing. They're not actually interested in progressing. Oh, it's um, tough science. because that's then rolled out into the education systems and schemes. So I know um, when I was studying my degree, it was quite long ago now, actually, which is quite embarrassing. Time goes so fast. But I know a lot of the information I learned on my degree, I am now in conflict with myself, obviously having done my own research and further investigations into things. And it's very interesting. Um, I can imagine it must be the same debate with the curriculum for younger children in schools you know, learning about healthy eating. And one area that is also quite debated is the um, effect gut health may be having on our mental health. So we know that a lot of serotonin, I mean, a huge stat, is it around 90% is produced in our gut. What links do we have at the moment between perhaps preventing depression with, with gut health? So it's a very good point. So the, the, everyone's known about the brain-gut axis mm. for a while, and that's where we have gut feelings yeah and we have uh basically the second brain in our guts which is the same size as a cat's brain uh of all the neurons that's such a good comparison is, is it really the size yes. of a cat's if you add brain them all up, it's, it's you, oh. you just stuck them into a, a ball it'd be the same as a cat's brain <laughs> oh, wow. so that's what we've got inside us so mm. that's our our gut feeling our intuition mm. you know all this uh, all these terms that we've had for centuries yeah uh, to describe butterflies emotion, in your belly, mm. you know, uh, and you know, often when we're stressed, we you know, we go to the toilet, and that's how we express it. You know, it's uh, <laughs> um, yeah, you know, you pee more often. You so get, true. Everything sort of nerves before up. you go onto stage or you do something, you always feel it. <laughs> so, and that's because there's this huge communication between the gut microbes producing these chemicals and our brain, and mm. increasingly we're recognizing these key chemicals, some of the particularly ones making us depressed or happy 
uh, are coming from our gut. Yeah. And they will produce that if the right microbes are there and those microbes are being fed properly. Mm. So increasingly we're realizing things like anxiety and depression uh, can be treated effectively with probiotics. Yes. Um, as well as uh, you know, major modifications of the diet. And the study so far is suggesting that these probiotics, um, even you know, yogurts with extra strains in it, have as much effect as the average uh, antidepressant wow. uh, medication prescribed by a doctor. So, yeah. you know, and yet we're in the early stages because no one's invested money in it because mm-hmm. unlike drug companies that make um, fifty billion out oh. of a, out of a product, yeah. Um, you know, some yogurt manufacturer or some probiotic doesn't have those sort of resources to, to do the big studies. But increasingly, uh, people with mild to moderate depression, I mm-hmm. think, should be told by their doctor to first try dietary manipulations yeah. before going on to, to medications that really may not suit them and I mean, may have other side effects. That's music to my ears. And I, I'm actually, my second book this May is with a snooker player called Ronnie O'Sullivan. And we're talking about food and mood a lot because of the impact it's had on him. And he's a living example. Obviously, that's anecdotal. But still, if you look at the impact, would it matter in different countries? So surely we would have, if this is true, happier nations where people eat better compared to nations when they don't. Or is there a genetic link? A bit of both. Yeah. I mean, the people have done studies about happiness and contentment. And there does seem to be a small genetic component. Yeah. Um, and a lot of happiness and contentment is about uh, what your expectations are. Uh-huh. That's why people in Afghanistan are much happier than people in the USA mm. on broad surveys. Hugely interesting. So it's yeah. quite hard culturally to compare. Yeah. Them. But um, I, I believe that people with a good varied diet and good gut health are on, on average likely to be healthier and have less have less depression. So I think this is very much a growing area. Yeah. Um, and of course again, lends itself to personalized medicine approaches because mm. uh, we don't know exactly what chemical metabolites no. are going to change people at the moment. And so it's going to be yeah. a series of uh, experiments. To and there's a out. rush, isn't there, to medicate. When I was younger, um, I was 18, I was put on antidepressants when it was my diet that was at fault by a mm. GP. And I think there has to be a movement soon where we are hopefully, like you said, leading to lifestyle interventions instead. Yeah, and many people, when they're in the early stages of depression, they eat badly anyway. Exactly. So they make it worse because mm. they get less interested in food. Of course. Or if it's uh, young girls, they might also you know, be on weight, you know, worried that about their was, weight, and so they're restricting products. themselves. Mm. So they're eating ultra-processed diet mm-hmm. products with masses of chemicals and actually exacerbating the whole problem. Eight, when, precisely. Well, what they need to do is just, you know, okay, that's the first thing someone's depressed, let's just completely change your diet. Yeah, let's, we need more see, nutritionists out there to help people. Well, yeah, we and but people who are enlightened enough to, to not... Just take the standard view and yeah. and say, you know what, there is some new evidence here that we don't just have to refer you to a GP. No. Um, I mean, you lead the largest um, twin study at the moment on microbiome in, in the UK, don't you? Could you talk to us about your research at the moment? Because I'm, I'm good friends with the Mac twins, who I know you do a lot of work with. Weren't they the first that you worked with? 
they're always the first to do our wacky experiments. Uh, if yeah. you know the Mac twins, they're usually game for anything. Yeah. Uh, so we've we've probed and stuck things up them, and you know yeah. done all kinds of um, Bless them. things that uh, even on even on radio we don't yeah. discuss. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, so we we were certainly the first people to do any large scale experiments. Yeah. On the microbiome in this country, mm. uh, and we've even now got the largest uh, uh, series of microbiome data on any of anyone in the UK, Incredible. probably in Europe, mm. because we uh, we've measured four thousand twins so far wow. with the gut microbiome studies, and we've also, as part of the British Gut Project, which is a, a citizen science project that people can join up themselves and pay for their own mm. stool analysis, we've got about another. Um, Five or six thousand people have done that as well. Sign up, everyone listening. We can add to the data. Great. Yeah, so we can compare different yeah. bits of the country and uh, uh, and see what's going on. But the the microbiome this has evolved. So seven years ago, we did this with um, very simple methods, but found important microbes that were responsible for obesity. Mm. That, that basically people who were overweight were more likely to lack. Yeah. And when we looked at their their other twin, they found that there was a difference. Wow. So the skinny twin often had more microbes than oh, the overweight twin. Goodness. And this is this idea that actually we need more microbes inside us, not less. Mm. So we shouldn't be trying to kill them off with antibiotics and domestos and sprays no. on the table. We should be encouraging them. We all need to get oh. a bit dirtier. That's, um, what about, because obviously nature nurture, were, were, were these twins living in the same environment growing up then? Or were they, do we know if their diets were different growing up? Most or? twins live uh, identical lives yeah. up to the age of 18. Yeah, okay. Then university comes in. Yeah, and, uh, changes everything. <laughs> and their um, student food and everything else. Yeah. And boyfriends and girlfriends mm. change and they're... They diversify, but so in the first eighteen years, it's a pretty good control. Yeah, uh, and a lot of the twins do have similar-looking microbes, but yeah. unlike everything else we've tested for the last twenty-five years in our twin program, the gut microbes of twins are the most different of anything we can measure. Okay, so they only share about thirty percent. So even yeah. if you're an identical clone, hmm. uh, your clone will only share about thirty percent of your gut microbe wow. species. So that, to my mind is the key to understanding why we're so individual. Goodness. If you have an identical clone, you live together for, you know, for 18 years and you still have different microbes, that explains why everybody responds differently to foods, why they respond differently to medicines, exercise, whatever. Yeah. So we've got to understand this uniqueness about our gut microbes if we're mm. going to really progress and give the best advice oh, to people. It's so interesting, Tim. And I've had so many questions from people um, for you today. So Anita has asked, <laughs> how reliable are these home gut health kits, so test kits? How reliable are those? They weren't very reliable when they first started five years ago. Mm. Uh, and some of them are very small companies that don't have a big database yeah. and maybe trying to con you out of your money yeah uh, i think gradually they're being weeded out and the mm. larger ones are um are getting better uh slowly but the amount of information they can give you is still rather limited yeah and i think people have to realize that because of this individuality mm. until really these these test sizes get to perhaps a hundred thousand a million yeah. people okay won't be able to really do that in any detail and that's um so you'll get a rough idea of your gut health 
They will should give you something called diversity, mm. which gives you a, an idea about whether you have to be careful or not. Mm. I mean, so I've been testing my diversity, you know, and luckily I've been near the top 5%. Oh, wow. Very lucky there. Um, Maybe yeah. it's all the cheese. <laughs> well, I'm always experimenting and that's yeah. why. I, and, and, and we know that to improve gut diversity, what you got to do is have as many different types of plants in a mm. week as you can. Yes. That's absolutely crucial. It doesn't Most matter whether that plant is a seed. Hand. It can be mm. a seed, a different type of nut. It can mm. be not just not just diff- not thirty different types of kale. Yeah, <laughs> um, it can be more uh, grains. They count as plants. Yes. So it, it's just that diversity yeah. that creates it. So that's one thing everyone can do. So if you want okay. a, a snapshot yeah. of where you are, I think most of the companies out there uh, do a pretty good Great. job of that. Yeah, um, but don't expect at the moment really good precise advice to do that you that's the next phase and that's something i can i can tell you a bit more about okay. uh, in the future but personalized uh, nutrition microbiome advice so what we're doing a study now um, called the predict study uh-huh. which is uh, looking at uh, over a thousand twins and looking at how they respond to food in a systematic yeah. way and testing their microbes yeah, um, to see if we can predict from their microbes Fab. what the best foods are they can eat. Cool. Uh, and so we're going to – that will be finished in it. April and we Great. should be announcing those results in around June. Of course. And then that will be a commercial product in about a year's time. Okay. So, um, Look out I think for that. Very much linking it to – in a way, how everyone responds to food mm. rather than just in general yeah. is is the way forward. But to do that, we are going to need thousands of people to mm. uh, in a sort of community idea yeah. because whilst everyone's unique, the only way we can get to this is if everyone works together. Well, I think that that's crucial. And it kind of leads me on to my favourite part of the podcast. So this is called Fact or Fiction. Okay, so it's a quick fire round, and you have to answer fact or fiction. Okay. Or someone made up the other day faction because they weren't sure it was in the middle. You, I don't mind. Just try and do one word, but see, see how we go. You can delve into a few. Okay, are you ready? Ready. Okay. Good gut health can reduce risk of disease. Fact. Bloating is unhealthy. Not sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, we should drink kombucha every day. I uh, <laughs> see. I'd say every other day, but you know. I like that. That's that's good. We'll go every other day. Greek yogurt is good for our gut health. Fact. Excellent. You must do a number two at least twice a day to be healthy. Fiction. There we go. The more I add into my diet, the better it is for my gut. Fact. Dairy is bad for our gut fiction prunes help with constipation fact yeah gut health can affect our skin fact look at this guy there was knowledge gut health can affect our immune system fact that was one of the quickest quick fire rounds we have had well done tim excellent answers there. did i get them all right then well i don't know if they're (laughs) it's up to you if they're right or wrong (laughs) 
<laughs> so that can nearly wraps up the podcast today. But as with every guest, I finish on a food for thought. So although there's a lot left to uncover, which we've really expanded on now about gut health, we do know that it's linked to almost everything in our bodies in some way, which is pretty remarkable. We know around two kilos of what we weigh is bacteria, or as Tim said, a cat's brain is, is the accurate kind of size that, that we're looking at. But what makes it an intrinsic part of our overall health and well-being? Given its importance, surely it's key to remember that no one size fits all. So something may well have been proven in research, but it doesn't always mean it applies to you. And that's something I would like to leave everyone with. So Tim, if you could leave our listeners of one thing today, one thing that you think would be useful, what would that be? Treat your your body is a sacred garden yeah <laughs> and uh, make sure you nourish it properly look after it realize that your soil is completely unique and experiment around it until you find the perfect match between all the, the soil and your flowers and you'll be happy ever after that was a really beautiful end to food for thought tim thank you for coming on the show my pleasure Thank you so much for listening. It's heartening to know there's such a craving to hear from expert voices in a world full of confusing nutritional advice. If you enjoyed this episode, you'll love what's coming next week. So click subscribe to be the first to hear it. And please do leave a five-star review. It really does help get our podcast out there and hopefully help more people. For more information about my nutrition clinic, books, healthy recipes, events, retreats, and so much more, please visit retrition.com and follow me at retrition on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Plant-based eating is on the rise and heck are paving the way forwards when it comes to veggie sausages. They have the power to sway even the most adamant of meat eaters. Believe me, I've seen it. The impressively original flavors, the super green with spinach and kale, Indian-inspired Bollywood bangers, Thai-infused sweet fusion, fiery beetroot and horseradish. They are so incredibly tasty and versatile, I genuinely can't decide on a favourite. The range can be found online at heckfood.co.uk as well as in all major supermarkets. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.